Hello and welcome to another edition of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. And we are continuing our Christmas films this week, and I chose today's movie, um, and I chose 2007's P2, directed by Frank Calfoon. This is a movie that I just happened to stumble across on Netflix. It was available on Netflix for a while. It came out in 2007, and it's been a while since that first time I saw it, and uh, I haven't seen it since then until I watched it uh, for this recording. What did you know about P2 going in, Todd? Absolutely nothing. Uh, just slipped right past my radar. So uh, when you suggested it, I was like, oh, this will be interesting to check out. Well, I think it passed a lot of people's radar because um, it got a wide release in the United States. Um, it's an American slash Canadian uh, film, um, and it did get a wide release, but it did really, really poorly. And its opening weekend, it only pulled in about $2 million. Um, and uh, as of now, I think that it's like – uh, the fifth worst opening for a wide release. Uh, and so it really didn't find an audience. I don't remember seeing any marketing for it at all. Um, when it popped up on Netflix, I assumed that it was just one of those a uh, little bit lower grade uh, films that you see there every once in a while. I guess DVD sales did better. Um, and it's, it's found a little bit of an audience, but people seem to be kind of mixed. There are those out there who think it's, it's really good. Um, and those out there who, for some reason, uh, don't like it. And I, I know which side of the fence I fall on. I'll be interested to see, uh, which side you fall on. Uh, any initial thoughts before we get going? You know, um, when you're talking about the, the history of this movie, I'm wondering, I'm thinking back to 2007 and I'm wondering, if it seems like this movie came out around maybe the middle or if not sort of the tail end of the sort of torture porn craze I would say where we saw a right. lot of these movies of people in peril and people doing bad things to each other like crazy people probably saw three or four was coming out around this I wonder if it just kind of got buried among the rest of those kind of films I mean when did Wolf Creek come out was it around this time as well I, I don't remember. I have no idea. You should have done it, my research. It's kind of surprising. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of surprising that um, it didn't do particularly well because the guys who worked on this, the uh, director, Frank Calhoun, and one of the writers, Alexander Aha, and one of the other guys in the production, I don't remember who it was, but all three of them had also worked together on the remake of The Hills Have Eyes, which had just come out, I think, the year before. And if I remember correctly, that movie did really well. Um, and got pretty positive reviews. So coming off the heels of that, one would have thought that uh, this would have done well too. Uh, maybe it didn't have the kind of recognition, uh, name recognition that the Hills Have Eyes had. Maybe that had something to do with that. I don't well, know. And um, didn't AHA do High Tension as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was Which was a French film, right? Yeah, and that came out here. Now, I'm not sure if it, it had a wide release here, but I think it, it did pretty well, at least um, – on streaming or video or something like that. It has a bit of a following in the U.S. anyway, a lot more than this one anyway. Yeah, definitely. Well, this one is uh, set at Christmas time. You know, we've said before how <laughs> we've done enough Christmas movies now that we're kind of doing a stretch every once in a while. But I would actually say that this movie has a really distinctive Christmas feel. It opens up uh, in a parking garage, and we're just kind of looking slowly around this uh, parking garage we see the security cameras and whatnot and uh, we see the title of the film p2 on one of the walls it's just referring to the level of this underground um, parking garage 
where the vast majority of the movie is set. And um, as we're going through this parking garage, Santa Baby is uh, playing in the background, and uh, we pan up to this BMW, this nice BMW, and and we kind of the the camera pans around to the back of it so that we're looking at the trunk. And out of nowhere, uh, we see the lock pop out, and we see an eyeball behind it. And right after that, we see a girl who appears to be bound somehow emerge out of uh, this car, um, out of the trunk of this car. And it's a good jump scare right there at the beginning. It's it's uh, juxtaposed well against the kind of nice <laughs> Santa Baby song uh, in the background. <laughs> That's just one of those ways that people often set up these a lot of creepy movies is uh, take some song like Santa Baby or uh, what's well, another Elvis song? Um, uh, American Werewolf in London, Blue Moon. Now, I guess that's right, not Elvis, right? but yeah, yeah. Take take the song that doesn't seem too horrible, and then slap something horrible over it, and yeah, it it really kind of turns your stomach a bit. <laughs> yeah, and it got me. I had seen the movie before, but it had been so long, I forgot. I mean, I really jumped. It was a it was a pretty good scare to get it started out. Yeah. Um, then we jump to another scene. Uh, we don't know this at the time, but what we're really doing is we're jumping back in time. We will eventually work our way back up to this uh, opening scene that we started with, but we're introduced to our main character. Angela, played by uh, Rachel Nichols, who has done mostly TV stuff, um, stuff like Chicago Fire and Criminal Minds. She does have movies um, to her credit, too. Um, but it, it appears that she's mostly uh, a TV actress, uh, lovely young lady. Um, and she works in some corporate building in what I assume is supposed to be New York. Was that the field that you got? Yeah, it is New York. Yeah, it is because she's she's working on Christmas Eve. Um, in, in some big corp, you know, some high rise, um, we, I don't know exactly what she does, but it's a very corporate feel (laughs) office feel. Yeah. They just talk about clients a lot. (laughs) Right, right. Exactly. And it seems like she's working. The Christmas party has either happened earlier that night or maybe the, the day before there's still remnants of the Christmas party around, but it seems like it's late at night and people are um, starting to uh, file out to go home. And she's one of the last ones there. And this guy comes into her office. Angela, I, I feel terrible about what happened. It's okay. It's fine. Let's just not worry about it. Okay. No, no, it's, it's not okay. I act like a real jerk. I had too many drinks and you know how these Christmas parties can be. You know, we had a baby last year and it's been a hard year. I'm sure that it has. I, I simply want to tell you that I'm just really, really sorry. Okay? Apology accepted. So we know that there's something that's going on with them, but we don't have any idea at this point what it is. Um, but it, it comes out up later. She talks on the phone uh, to her sister, uh, Lorraine, and she's supposed to be going home to New Jersey uh, that night for their Christmas celebration. But she's late, and it seems like that's kind of par for the course for her. You know, it seems like they're kind of doubtful of whether she's going to make it or when she's going to make it, but she assures them that she's going to be there. When she does leave, she's the last one to leave. She runs into Carl, uh, a security guard, 
who tells her that he does have to work tonight, but that after that, they're closing the building down for the next uh, three days. So she goes down to the parking garage. She's got a Santa suit that she's supposed to be taking so her dad can dress up uh, as Santa for his grandkids, her nieces and nephews and whatnot. And um, she's got some gifts and things. And she goes down and we see that her car is the same black BMW that we saw before. But she gets in it and it appears to be dead. Uh, meanwhile, we see that somebody is watching this car on surveillance. So she grabs the gifts and everything and heads for uh, the security office where she's first um, greeted by Rocky, uh, this uh, um, <laughs> Rottweiler uh, this the, that seems like a pretty aggressive Rottweiler. And that's where she meets our other main character, Thomas, played by Wes Bentley, who I always remember as the the bag boy from American Beauty, the weirdo who is always like taking photographs of like shopping bags yeah. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's been in lots and lots of stuff. He's a good looking guy, dark haired, blue eyes. He's also been um, in American Horror Story. He was in one of the Hunger Games movies. You've seen him around quite a bit. Now we've met both of our main characters, though we may not really know that yet. And Thomas seems very nice and helpful, but at the same time, he also seems like he's kind of got a little bit of an edge to him. Uh, he offers to help her with the car, it, and she's grateful, but she thinks it would be better to just get a cab, but he says, nah, I can get you up and running. I've got a charger, and, and so they try, but he can't get it started, so she is just going to get a cab, and it appears like he doesn't really think that maybe she's as grateful as she should be um, for for uh, his his assistance. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I don't know what happened. You know, I thought I could do something about it. That's okay. Um, you've been great. Can you just let me into the elevator room now? I was just trying to help. I know. Um, and I, I appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, listen, I, I know you're upset about your car not starting, but it's the holidays, you know? It's time to be thankful. No, you know what? You're right. Yeah? I should be thankful. Did you have any idea where this was headed at this point? Yeah, I kind of did. I'd say that maybe it's just the title of the movie, P2, and the opening scene that precedes it. We know that I knew that we were probably not going to leave this parking garage. And as the other characters are super friendly and and walk away, uh, this is the only guy who starts to uh, seem a little strange. The minute she couldn't start her car and she knocked on the door and there's this other guy... Uh, there to help her, I thought, well, this is going to be the guy, right? And I didn't even read anything about this beforehand. Like, I had no idea of the plot, no idea of anything. And to her credit, you know, as far as the writing goes in this movie, I think she deals with him um, in a very smart way. She seems to be a smart person who's probably been come on to by a lot of guys, uh, like a lot of pretty Mm -hmm. girls uh, have been. Um, And again, we even get that suggestion maybe from earlier, uh, her interaction with Jim. Um, So the way that she deals with him is the way I would imagine that women tend to deal with guys like this. Uh, They keep their distance, but they say nice things in order not to rile them up a little bit. And so right. she's so, um, oh, oh, that's okay, that's okay, that's fine. No, really, I appreciate the help, but, but really, let's, let's get me a cab. Throughout this movie, at least the earlier moment when she starts to become in peril, I think it's really smart uh, that she deals with him in that way, in the beginning at least. Uh, but yeah, I, right. I, I saw it coming from a mile away uh, the minute we met this guy. In fact, I actually thought that Tom was not the security guard at the building because when she meets him in that room, he makes a big deal out of looking for his keys. 
and he's kind of come in from the back. And I know I've seen this in movies before where it's the guy who has killed the security guard and he's quickly right. dressed as the security guard. And so he doesn't know where the keys are because he's not the guy. And so he's looking around. I thought that was the case. I don't think that's the case here. He really was uh, the security guard in this building. If he wasn't, um, I don't think there's any indication. Is there, Craig? Or did I miss that? No, no. No, I think that's the suggestion. I think that the suggestion is that this really is his job. You know, he's kind of security, but he's really just the parking lot attendant. You know, that's, yeah. that's his field i guess um and we get the sense later on that he has been watching uh angela for a long time and i I think that's the case and and that this what's about to happen is something that he has planned um i mean it has to be uh there's no way that he could have just done this on the spur of the moment there there had to have been a lot of planning that went into it yeah um as it turns out it turns out that he's a psychopath um, and that he's obsessed with her. He doesn't know her at all, and she doesn't know him, um, but he apparently has been watching her for a long time. Um, and I have to say that uh, Wes Bentley, I think, does a really good job in this movie. I, I, I mean, I, I think the guy's just a good actor, period, but he plays a really good job, of, I think, of somebody who's really unhinged um, because it really seems like he does want to help her. He does want to be her knight in shining armor. He just doesn't realize that the way that he's going about it is totally psychotic. And that being so self-unaware, that really reads to me as actual crazy. And that becomes clear very soon because uh, Angela goes back upstairs and Carl's not there. And and I'm thinking, you know, where's Carl? You know, <laughs> why wouldn't he be there? You know, she he was just there a little while ago. She calls and tells her family that she's running late, but that she's still going to be there. And, and then she calls for a cab and she waits in the lobby and kind of falls asleep until the cab gets there. And it honks for her. She grabs all her stuff and goes to leave. Um, but the door's locked uh, and she can't get out. And Carl's still not around, so she can't get his assistance. So she yells through the window, you know, hold on, just wait a minute, I'll be right there. And she runs back down into the garage. Apparently, it seems like she's going to try to exit through the garage. But when she gets down there, it's all closed up and locked up too. The cab takes off. And right after that happens, all of the lights in the parking garage go out. And so she's kind of stumbling around in the dark trying to use her phone as a flashlight like we all do. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like it really provides any kind of illumination at all. But for some reason, we all think that no oh it's dark i guess our cell phones will work but anyway so she's walking around and i think she trips over something and she drops her phone under a car and um when she retrieves it and she stands up she turns it towards her and we're looking at her and and the light from the phone illuminates tom standing right behind her and he grabs her and chloroforms her and she the camera fades to black as she passes out when she wakes up we see from her perspective, her kind of groggily waking up and all we can kind of see in a fuzzy detail is Tom apparently sitting across a table from her in full Santa suit. But that <laughs> she, she, she loses consciousness again. And when she wakes up, he is trying to, he's taken off the, the beard and the hat, but he's still got the, the Santa coat on. And we see that she's now in a different dress. She's in this kind of really sultry white dress that uh, really um, accentuates her full bosom. He, she's, she's sick and, and confused uh, from the chloroform. And she tries to get up and she falls down, and we see that she is chained to the chair. 
Um, she vomits on the floor because she's sick uh, from the chloroform, but he helps her back up into her seat. And he tells her that he has this holiday dinner. He had actually invited her and asked if she would want to stay. He's got some food. And, and uh, she said, no, of course, because that's crazy. Um, but uh, apparently he didn't take no for an answer. And here she is. And he's like serving her food and talking to her really nice and asking her questions like you would ask on a first date. Yeah. And she is understandably totally confused and frightened. But like you said before, she seems to be really smart. Listen, Tom. Tom. I have some place to be. You know, I have I have obligations. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Way too many. You need to make time for yourself, you know? You don't need to be at everyone's beck and call. So then maybe we should get a drink in the new year. Yeah. Already prepared everything. I mean, all here. I know, and it, it looks really good. Yeah? Great. Well, let's eat. I'm starving. Tom, this is really sweet of you, and, and I mean that, but my whole family's expecting me. I have plans. I, mean, I guess some plans are made to be broken. This scene I thought was pretty well done. Actually, it reminded me a lot of The Loved Ones. Uh, I almost... I mean, yeah, I yeah. This movie came first, right? Before it. But it, it almost... Uh-huh, I think it, so. It seems like uh, the, the director of The Loved Ones or the writer of The Loved Ones might have seen this movie and thought, you know, I can take this and, and do it one better. In filmmaking, there's something called the 180-degree rule, where when you're shooting a scene, there's an invisible line across a scene that you, that you don't cross with the camera unless you have to. So if you can imagine like, say, a a dinner table, Um, you're only going to shoot from one side of the table. One person is looking to the right and talking to a person, and then they're responding and they're looking to the left, uh, you know, in the close-ups. If you start going back and forth between the different sides of the table, it becomes confusing to you spatially. And suddenly this person is talking to the right, and then the other person responds, and they're talking to the right. Um, It seems odd. Uh, And So that's just a a general rule of filmmaking is that you don't do that. And the way that this... This scene starts out, she's on the left uh, and he's on the right. It's, it's shot from that side of the table. And it's a position, just naturally as people, we're comfortable with left to right scenarios. So right. when she's on the left, she seems like – the scene, I, I guess the scene seems a little friendlier if that's one way to put it. Not that she seems like she has the upper hand, but at least um, our sympathies uh, kind of lie in her direction because she's on the left and he's on the right. Uh, It's just a subtle psychological thing. But then um, she says the first thing that he doesn't like. My boyfriend's going to get worried and he's going to come looking for me. And at that moment, the shot is over her right shoulder and the camera slowly pans behind her and comes around to the other side of the table in a, in a nice swooping motion. And there's even a musical cue with it. And that visually uh, is very effective at signaling a sudden change and a shift. And now from this point on, the camera's on the other side of the table. He's on the left and she's on the right. And he, it all of a sudden feels very sinister and wrong. Now he's in that mm-hmm. position of power and she's not. It's really well done. Uh, and it's a very clear shift uh, that we know that the tone of the movie is going to change from here on out. And this guy is not going to be as nice. Well, I didn't notice that at all. You're the filmmaker. I'm not. But 
it certainly was effective because it really made me uneasy and it really highlighted the shift because he is so friendly, you know, and that's, again, that's the thing that makes him so psychotic in one moment. He will be charming. I mean, this is a good looking guy. And if this were, if she weren't chained to the chair and this, if she were there consensually, he's very sweet, but (laughs) he's a psycho and, and she is tied to the chair. You know, he's saying, you know, just very, casual things like asking her what her hobbies are. And he says, I like to read. And right now I'm reading The Sun Also Rises by Hemingway. It's uh, it's this story about this guy that loves this girl so much that he's willing to forgive anything she does, um, even her <laughs> infidelities. And he says, it's a pretty intense story, but that's what love's supposed to be, right? And you know, <laughs> I'm sure she's thinking the same thing I'm thinking. Oh, shit. <laughs> like, this guy is a whack job. Well, but she keeps her cool pretty well. She and you're does. right. She brings up the boyfriend and he starts grilling her about the boyfriend. How long have you been together? Uh, what's his name? What does he do? And she says, he's a sports writer. And, and, uh, he's like, well, what, for what publication? And she says the Washington post. And he's like, Oh, I read that. I don't remember his name. And he, he says, I even have one. And, um, uh, he goes to grab it. She's like, uh, no, he, he's, uh, online. He, he does it online. And he just keeps on grilling her, keeps on grilling her. Um, until finally, you know, you haven't been very talkative since we met. But now, you're telling me all about your boyfriend. Oh, sorry, fiance. So either we become best friends over dinner or you're lying to me. And then he says something about her family and he calls them out by name. So this guy has obviously done his homework and that's scary in and of itself too. I mean, he's clearly, he's, he's stalking her. Um, she didn't know it. She had no idea, but he's, who knows how long this has been going on for him to know so much about her. What, what makes it even spookier is that she has never even seen this guy before. Like this isn't like the parking attendant that she sees every evening and waves at or anything. She has no recollection of this guy whatsoever from this building. And it's effective. I mean, this is a really tense movie. If I were going to criticize it at all, um, I would say that it maybe is a little bit long. And it's not a long movie. It's only an hour 40. Um, but I, it's really tense, and it never really gets slow or boring. But I felt like maybe they could have trimmed it just a little yeah. bit. Um, it, it felt a little long, maybe. It, my criticism would be that it sometimes loses some of its tension or things. things uh, she gets away a little too easily at moments. I think this first right, part is right. the most effective and the most tense. I would argue that it kind of loses a little bit of tension here and there as the movie progresses. But you're right. It doesn't stop moving uh, as soon as she starts to uh, – to uh, take things matters into her own hands. Well, and this, whether it's the performance or, or whatever, you know, the, the setup, I mean, this office is all very cheerily decorated for Christmas with tons of Christmas lights and there's Christmas music playing. And like you said, you know, juxtaposing something that's supposed to be innocent and fun and celebratory against this nightmarish circumstance. I think that works really well. Um, it, but once, she does get away, which she does. Um, I mean, not completely, but uh, she gets away from him for a while. Then it becomes, I think, a little bit more typical. Uh, it kind of starts kind of following the same sort of pattern as many slasher movies. Yeah. Um, and, and that's okay. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. Uh, and it's still enjoyable and fun. But this first part feels very much like something that I haven't really seen exactly like this before. Yes, and and it agree. feels fresh. And I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, he makes her call her family and it's a very tense scene where, you know, he dials for her, but he makes her do it on speakerphone. And, um, as the phone is ringing, he kind of, oh gosh, like he kind of runs his hands sensually up her arm and up to her neck. And it seems very sensual until he then puts his hands in a choking fashion around her neck. So, um, obviously she's threatened and she has to do what he says. Oh, that was so creepy. It was creepy and it was sad and it was hard to watch. And she's a good actress too. I mean, trying to keep her cool so as not to alarm her family and also so as not to incur his anger and, and wrath. Um, but she, you know, she just tells her sister, I I'm sick. Uh, I had to go home. I'm not gonna be able to make it. And the sister, you know, she's like, gosh, you always do this. You always put your family or your work first. And um, meanwhile, she's crying and the mom gets on the phone and and says, oh, it's okay, honey. We'll see you tomorrow. Just get your rest. And then uh, they hang up. And then he gives her a present and it's the surveillance footage of the incident that we don't know about, but that was suggested with the whole Jim conversation earlier. Apparently at the Christmas party, she and Jim had been on the elevator alone together. And it seemed like they were just kind of joking around with one another, but then he took it too far and he kind of tried to grab her and and kiss her. And she rebuffed his advances. Uh, At that point he says, let's go for a ride. And as he unchains her, from the he's down because she's shackled by her ankle to the chair so he has to get down to do that and while he's doing that um she's looking around at the table where there's been food and and dining stuff set up as soon as she's unchained she jumps up she grabs a fork and she stabs him in the back with it um but he's able to overpower her and he handcuffs her uh behind his back and i'm thinking you know oh man, she's in trouble now. But he's, again, he's just such a psycho that he's like, oh, now why would you go and do a thing like that? I'm, I'm just trying to help you. And, and he remains calm. Um, and he puts her in a car and they start driving around, but she can tell that they're driving down. She says, I thought we were going for a ride. And he says, we are, but it's nicer down here. And this leads to a really chilling scene that I want you to tell our listeners about. Cause I want to see what you thought about this. Scene. <laughs> yeah, this was a pretty good scene actually. And you're right. It was very chilling. And I guess I wasn't expecting it. He pulls down to level four, uh, P four. <laughs> We've gone from P two to P four. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, it, and he's in his car and she's chatting with him and, She's again turning on the charm a little bit. She's trying to act friendlier towards him. And she's using his name a lot in the conversation. And they get down here and he turns his headlights on. And in front of them is this guy, uh, Jim, who is duct taped to an office chair uh, in front of a a little bit of a distance in front of a a wall and in front of them. Oh, my God, tell him what is this? This is my present to you. Take this and show him. Show him what? Show him you're not a slut. Take this and teach him he can't be touching every woman he wants. Are you talking about what happened in the elevator? No. No, 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 you don't understand. That was a mistake. That was a stupid mistake. What? What? He tried to rape you. He got a little out of hand at a party, Tom. He hardly tried to rape me. Look, he was drunk. He apologized. I guess it's a flashlight, like a one of those big, heavy flashlights. 
like mag lights, yeah. Mag, yeah, and, and hands it to her. Uh, and so after a bit of back and forth and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, this guy is totally going to get it. She says, okay, uh, I'll do it, but you need to untie me first, which was a really mm-hmm. dumb thing for her to say, I think, because of course he'd have to untie her. She shouldn't have called attention to the fact uh, that he'd right. have to untie her. And that seems to... I don't know. You could argue it triggers in his mind this idea that, no, maybe I shouldn't do that. But I sort of feel like he was playing with her all along and that he really intended to beat this guy for her anyway. Whatever the case may be, he goes, no, you know what? I shouldn't put you in this position. I need to do this myself. And so he gets out of the car. And, of course, she's screaming and pleading with him. No, 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 don't. I'll do it. She's kind of trying anything at this point. He walks up to this guy and just starts brutally beating on him. And it's... It's pretty, it's pretty hard to see. Uh, and of course, yeah. this guy can see her through the windshield as well. And so mm-hmm. you can imagine what's going through her mind. Like, I, I don't want him to think that I put him up to this. It's just a terrible situation. Terrible situation. Right. He gets back in the car like they're going to leave, but he doesn't leave. Uh, he backs up. And I mean, I knew this was coming too. I knew at the minute he was in the car and they were, you know, they were in the car and he was in the thing. But still, um, he says, no, basically he's going to finish the job. And he backs up far and then completely smashed Jim against a wall repeatedly. And it's repeatedly, yeah. It's repeatedly, and it is hard to watch. And that, again, is why I say that this really comes from that era, I think, where I think movies were going out of their way to be shockingly brutal and shockingly gory. It definitely harkened back to that time because it pulls no punches in showing you exactly what's happening to Jim as he's repeatedly getting smashed up against this wall. It's pretty gross, uh, and it definitely uh, ups the ante considerably uh, for the movie. We know that this guy's psychotic and that he's just willing to totally kill. He can do it without any kind of remorse whatsoever. So the, yeah, the, you can do it with a smile on his face. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And you know, at this point, you even you're not even sure that this guy doesn't realize this is wrong. You know, it's not like he's it, it ups it to a whole new level where there's no way a human being could do this to another human being and still think that he's doing the right thing. Uh, so it it tells you this guy is is completely unhinged and also that he's completely unpredictable. Uh, he can't be manipulated by her. And he's can can do some absolutely horrible things with a smile on his face. And so a movie, a scene like this, sort of has to happen in a movie like this in order to show you exactly what you're dealing with and put you on that that edge of uncomfortability and unpredictability. Uh, and the fact that this girl's sweet talking just is not going to get her out of this situation. She realizes it, and now the film becomes. How is how am I going to get out of this uh, for her? Yeah, I thought that this scene was really effective too, um, for a couple of reasons. The 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 gore effects, um, you know, I can take or leave gore. You know, if it's yeah. done well, great. Um, I think movies can be suggestive without a lot of graphic imagery, and and that can be really effective too. Um, but here, the gore is super brutal, and it's so well done that it really looks real. Yeah. And um, that, I mean, that it's it's really unsettling. The other thing um, that was really unsettling for me, I mean, it's just well acted. You know, these two main actors. Um, just do a really, really good job. And the exchange between them in the car before he beats Tom, I thought was so effective when she yeah. was, you know, saying his name over and over again. 
Um, and it's not like, you know, he was just like, stop it. Like he full out freaks out on her. Like he's screaming and at the top of his lungs at her. And we really see that, that, that charming facade behind that, there is a lot of anger and, and violence. And, um, I, I thought that was really good. I thought it was a great scene and you're right. It kind of just establishes, wow, she is really, really in trouble. Gosh, uh, what happens next? Oh, and another thing, you know, he's so psycho. Like he, he, first of all, he like gives, um, Jim a lecture beforehand, kind of explaining why he's getting this punishment. Um, and then after he beats him with the, uh, with the flashlight multiple times, he leans in and says, way to run Christmas asshole. And like, he's sincere about it. Like, like you did this, you ruined Christmas and it's messed up. Well, um, let's see. Uh, at that point, the, the whole time this has been going on, she has been trying to get the door unlocked and, and, and she does. I mean, it's, it's difficult cause she's handcuffed. She's handcuffed through like four fifths of this movie, um, <laughs> which makes everything even more difficult for her. Uh, made me feel bad for the actress. <laughs> yeah. It felt like that, that surely had to hurt after a while, but she gets out and she runs. And he doesn't take off after her, which I thought was interesting. He lets her go. And instead, he stays there and kind of cleans up the mess. Um, we see him over the surveillance cameras, pulling the body away, p- uh, putting up uh, industrial flats, uh, putting them over the stain in the wall from where he smashed this guy against the wall. Meanwhile, she runs back to the office um, and she gets, she's trying to get her purse because she wants her phone, but she has to deal with Rocky, who's really close to her purse. Uh, she, she gets a hold of it, but the dog snaps at it and gets a hold of it too. So she's playing tug of war, uh, with Rocky and here I'm thinking I've got a Rottweiler. (laughs) (laughs) This girl is not going to win a tug of war with the Rottweiler. Um, and she doesn't really, um, the, the purse I think tears in half, but her phone falls out and she's able to get it. Um, and she also grabs a, a set of pass keys um, off the desk. And so she's running around um, trying to get her phone to get service, but it has no service. She gets to the gate and um, she's searching for service. She can't get any, but if she puts the phone through a hole in the gate, there's a little bit of service. So she does that, but then, of course, she drops it. But I think that she had already dialed 911. She can't tell if there's anybody on it. But she says, if there, if anybody can hear me, and she explains her situation. She says, what's happening? She says where she is. Um, meanwhile, Tom's looking for her, and he's getting close. And uh, we think that he's going to find her because her handcuffs are stuck in the gate. She can't get out. But right at the last minute, Tom comes around the corner, and she's not there. And she um, runs to an elevator and uh, gets in the elevator just right in the nick of time but i don't know if the elevator is locked or something i mean earlier we had seen carl lock the main elevator that they had used to come down so i don't know if this elevator is locked she can she can only get it to move in between the floors of the parking garage yeah. maybe it's just a parking garage elevator i don't well, know i think um, i think it was the lock because they make a big deal uh, out of carl locking the elevator just visually a couple times in the in the movie and she, I think she even says, well, why, why is it locked or something like that? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, and, and I feel like this whole sequence here, this is where I lost a little bit of tension because I felt like this was happening a little too easy for her. I, I hate mm-hmm. those scenes, 
in the movie. I mean, you're always rooting for her, right? You always want the character right. to get out of these situations. And so you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, don't find her, don't find her. I mean, that's going on in your head. But at the same time, without the impending danger, you lose the, the tension and the gut wrenchiness of the scene and the bit where her arms are almost seem stuck through the door and they're intercutting that with uh jim getting closer they pull one of those old tricks where he comes around the corner and suddenly she's gotten out like she's just not there and i can't really tell where or how it's just a little too easy because this is a big wide empty parking garage uh, a voice should travel through here like nothing. Footsteps will travel through here like nothing. And he's mm-hmm. getting super, super close, and suddenly she's not there, and she's managed to escape. That happens so often in this movie, just so conveniently, that it it really kills, I think, some of the some of the mood. Even though I'm rooting for her, even though I want her to get away, you know, it's there's a part of you that's a little like what? It's it's a mixture of disappointment and a little bit of disbelief too. Of that she's able to then run away from this guy and make it to this elevator. And he's even got the dog with him at this point, doesn't he? Uh-huh. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. He's searching for her. He's got the flashlight swinging around. And she's able to evade him and this dog. A dog which, I mean, if I remember correctly, there's a shot of her kind of around the corner, just maybe about 30 feet away from him and this dog. Yeah, yeah. And the dog, I thought, well, the dog's going to smell her or sense her or with its hearing, it's going to be able to hear her breath or something, but he doesn't. It's a little too convenient. Well, I, I get what you're saying. That part actually felt very tense to me because I thought that he was going to come around the corner and she was still going to be there. And so it was kind of a relief to me when she was gone. Realistic? Maybe not. And then this next scene that's coming up to realistic? Certainly not. And I almost, <laughs> again, you know, I, I don't hate this scene. I appreciate it for what it is. It pulls me out a little bit um, because it just feels so unrealistic. She gets in the elevator and she stops it there, which I thought was actually pretty genius. I mean, even if even if she had to wait it out for the next three days, I mean, in theory, she could. But what happens is, you know, she tries to call security on on the thing in the elevator and somebody comes on, got an Indian accent. I knew it was Tom from the beginning. And eventually he (laughs) reveals himself that it is. And he's just saying things like, you know, if you just give us a chance, it can work out. You'll grow to like me. You know, that's that's usually what happens when two people are forced to, to be together in a stressful situation. They have to depend on one another. (laughs) And at this point, you know, safe behind the doors of this elevator, she's letting him have it, telling him how she really feels. Um, And so she's saying, I'm not coming out. There's nothing you can do to make me come out. Well, apparently there is because he lowers a fire hose into the shaft from the floor above and turns it on. And um, water starts to fill the elevator, which... Yeah, wouldn't right. happen. <laughs> like it, it just, it just wouldn't happen. I mean, the, the, it, first of all, it could have run down the sides and I'm sure that there's some sort of drainage, uh, in elevators. It's not like this is a watertight deal, Yeah. but not only that. So she's freaking out. Um, and, and then something comes falling through the ceiling that he's obviously thrown from above and it's Carl, it's Carl's dead body. So she, um, gets out at P3 and she takes off running again and hides under a truck. So then 
he, Tom, comes back down. He goes in. He looks at Carl uh, first, and he says to him, way to ruin Christmas, Carl. And, and like, <laughs> it sounds really funny when I say it, but when he says it, he's so sincere in saying it that it's really – it's creepy. I mean this guy is just yeah. totally whacked. So he, he, he kind of finds her under the truck, and, and he doesn't actually look under there, but I think he thinks she's under there, and he, she is, and he's talking to her. And he's also popping the tires, and every time he pops a tire, um, it lowers down. And so after he's popped two on one side, she rolls out the other side and takes off and gets away again. Again – I guess you can consider that realistic that he doesn't feel like he needs to chase her because she's stuck in here. She can't get out. Um, and he has access to these security cameras, which show every part of the building so he can find her. And I guess that's kind of what he does. Um, he goes back to the office and I loved this scene too. Um, <laughs> he, he puts a, 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 an Elvis ornament on the turntable of a record player and puts the record on and it's blue Christmas by Elvis Presley. And he does the entire number. Like he does a Elvis impersonation, which is actually quite good. I mean, the guy can move and, and there's, there's a, you see a picture of him on the bulletin board in full uh, Elvis garb. So apparently this is something that he does. And I just thought that it was really creepy to watch him stand there and dance and sing while he's watching her run around on the security cameras. But eventually, he gets so into his performance that he doesn't see that she grabs a fire axe and starts taking out the security cameras. And then she does what I wanted her to do. She heads back towards the office with now, the axe. Yeah, and you know this bit where she's taking out the security cameras, I thought, oh, wow, this is cool. Because as you say, he doesn't notice. Every time she whacks a camera, he's kind of into his performance or he's turned around or he's twirling or something. And the way that the screens are set up, they can only show you know so many cameras at once. And so when a camera goes out, it's not like in other movies where the camera goes out and then all we see is fuzz and somebody notices, hey, camera three is out. But it just gets replaced automatically by another feed. So she's doing a really smart thing in whacking out all these cameras. Now, she's not whacking out enough of them. <laughs> right. But then right. none of that ends up going anywhere. Like, I thought for sure that this would turn out in her favor. But the way the rest of the movie plays out, it doesn't really even seem to matter. Because it doesn't really come into play. He doesn't turn around and notice, hey, wait a minute, I can't find her and go back out again. He doesn't... Um, he doesn't run to the to the screens and frantically look for her at any point and find, and where is she you know right. there's there's just nothing uh and that's one of the weaknesses here of this setup the great thing about it that I thought was really good is that the movie constantly reminds you that there are security cameras all around right uh, right there, it seems like there's no inch you can go and we're seeing the security cameras uh, early on and of course the whole thing is predicated on the fact that he's monitoring her and uh, the incident that incites him to take action uh, happens on a security camera in in the elevator. Yet the problem mm -hmm. with the security cameras is there's only one place you can see them, <laughs> and that is right, in right. the office. So if she's out running around and he needs to find her, eventually he can he can watch these cameras, but he's going to have to leave there. At which point she's going right. to have moved, changed her position. So it seems like this really sinister thing, but honestly, it. it doesn't end up mattering and it couldn't end up mattering be because of that weakness so i was a little disappointed too and that that 
didn't end up being as effective as I thought it would be. And her knocking out those cameras didn't really make any difference for her in the long run. Not really. I mean, I I guess it kind of allowed her to get back to the office unnoticed, I guess. But it it seems like... He knew that she was eventually going to have to end up there. I don't know. Yeah, because he's it gone. Seems like this was a trap. Yeah, right. It seems it seems like this is a trap that he has set. And and so as the song ends, she's sneaking into the office, and the song ends, and she sees that the TV is playing again. Not the security monitors, but the TV he had shown her the other video on. And it's video from his perspective, like he's clearly holding a handheld camera, and it's of her unconscious, and he's putting that red lipstick on her, and then he's kind of fondling her breast, and um, it, it looks like his hand is maybe kind of going up her skirt, and she takes the axe and, and, and destroys um, the uh, TV because she's so upset by what she's seeing. Mm. Unfortunately, he, his plan worked. She was distracted so that he was able to sneak up behind her, and he tases her. And she's unconscious. At that moment, the cops arrive and he sees them at the gate. And so he talks to him on the monitor. Well, he tases her again to make sure she stays unconscious. Again, not really believable because tasers don't knock you out um, unless they give you a heart attack, in which case (laughs) she'd be dead. but anyway, uh, she's uh, she's knocked out. He goes down to talk to the police, and they say they received a call uh, about a disturbance. So apparently her call had gone through. It bothered me that they were coming through the same gate where she had dropped her phone, and they don't notice that. Um, I mean, I guess if they weren't paying attention and they pulled over it with the car, then they wouldn't see it. But I would think if I were pulling slowly down towards a gate, I would notice a phone on the ground. Yeah. But they don't. They want to look around, and uh, they do. Um, and it, it, it looks at some. They they appear very suspicious, but he's very calm and just says, "Nope, it's been real quiet. Nothing's happened here." Meanwhile, we realize we find out that before he has gone to go to the cops, he has locked her in the BMW. So we have now looped our way back around to where we began. And the cops drive by the BMW. She tries to uh, scream from inside it. That's why. Uh, Tom turns on Santa Baby and plays it over the the loudspeakers, the intercom, is to kind of muffle her cries. And the cops uh, eventually leave, but she gets out as they're leaving, and she's running, 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 trying to get to them before they leave, but she's just a split second too late. Tom is there putting the gate down, um, Tom and Rocky both. And so she turns and runs away again, and this time Tom six Rocky on her. Yeah. Um, and you talk about the sinks, it's too hard for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, this movie is definitely willing to go places. Um, I will say yeah. that the, b- b- before that, uh, the, the cop sequence was really well done. I guess we keep I saying like- this. You know, e- e- there are individual sequences in this movie that are really well done. To me, the movie as a whole pieced together, I won't say I didn't like it. I guess I would just say that it didn't hold the interest for me. And maybe I've seen too many of these movies. Maybe I'm getting kind of tired of the psychotic guy keeps a woman in peril somewhere and then she's trying to get out and it's this cat and mouse thing. But then, of course, I pointed out some weaknesses earlier. Uh, this The cop sequence that was really great that they showed us the bit of her in the trunk beforehand. Uh, it was more than just a, a clever way of giving us a jump scare early on in the movie, you know, which which yeah. horror films have to do. But it, it lets you know she does burst out of this trunk, and you're just hoping with that knowledge, you're hoping that she's going to do it while the cops are coming by. <laughs> so it's a case where mm-hmm. being armed with that knowledge really ratchets up the tension in the scene because you know she's going to escape. You're just hoping it's going to be in time. Uh, and as you say, of course, it turns out not to be. And I also like the fact that the cops 
are not your horror movie cops who just come and take the other guy's word for it, poke around, and then leave. They really do a a thorough sweep of the place, and they grill him too. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I was really impressed with that and really sad, uh, you know, as a viewer that obviously that uh, that that it worked, you know, that the guy was able to stave them off. They escaped. But here's another thing, which I think is again, a weakness and it's just a movie trope. Really. You sick the dog on the person. And in, in an instant, that person should be gone. Uh, There's no way you can outrun this dog. (laughs) No, no, no way. (laughs) But she's able to run pretty darn far away from this dog. Ends up uh, breaking her way into the back of a car and diving into the back seat. The dog leaps through the window, and no, I, I love animals. I love animals, uh, but of course, the whole thing I'm thinking this entire time is you got to get, you got to take this dog out. You've got to take this dog out. I was thinking this in the earlier scene she had with him when the dog was chained. I was going, "My God, woman, the guy, the dog is chained to a wall. There's only so far he can go, and you are within reach of so many things right now, and you clearly have plenty of time. Whack this dog over the head." I know it's a dog, but the dog is not cute and cuddly. It's trying to kill you. And, right. And take the opportunity to take out the dog, but she doesn't then. And this time, she obviously, she definitely uh, has to. And so uh, she has – I guess she still has a screwdriver or something from – It's a tire iron. It, oh. she, she, that's what she got out of the – that's what that's she got right. out of the trunk with. She had used a tire iron to pop the lock out, and she still has it. That's right. And she just nails the t- this dog through the head with the tire iron. And – I don't know. Maybe this is even a more brutal kill. No, but it's cl- it's a bloodier. <laughs> yeah, blood yeah. sprays everywhere, and she kills this dog. And I know, I know, Craig. I mean, the poor dog. It, it didn't deserve this. The dog doesn't know what's going on. And you know, anytime you kill dogs is is kind of a sad thing. But I don't know, man. Right. This wasn't that hard for me to watch. I wanted that dog to die. <laughs> oh no, no, and and she had to. And, and yeah. you know, again, it wasn't the dog's fault. Um, you yeah. know, that's it was doing what it had been trained to do. Um, it's just violence against animals just bothers me yeah. anytime, anywhere. Um, it, it it's just really difficult for me to watch. She had to do it. I probably would have done the same thing. Um, yeah. It's just it's you know. That dog looks just like my dog. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so uh, so it, it, was, it was just unsettling. And I was oh, glad that man. my dog wasn't in the room because I wouldn't have wanted her to see that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, she gets out and she breaks into this rent-a-car place, which is down in this garage. He comes and he finds the dog and he's saying things like, Why would you do that? Huh? He's just an animal. Angela! Why would you kill a defenseless animal? After all I did for you, to help you, this is what I get? You kill my dog! You're really starting to piss me off! <laughs> um, I mean, he's just crazy. Like, he has absolutely no ration, no reason uh, at all. I mean, he's just crazy. He sees her bloody handprints on the on the door. She's tried to call 911, but uh, it was busy. Of course, it's always busy yeah. in these movies. Um, <clears throat> I groaned at that. I'm sorry. But, I totally groaned at that. 911, please hold. <laughs> Our lines are busy. Oh, come on. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, the holidays are, I guess, crime rates do go up on the holidays. I, I don't suppose. Think. But, you know, 
she could have called anybody. She could have called her sister. I mean, there's, there's so true. Many, yeah, you know, I don't know. She had time. She clearly. Well, had I don't time. know. Maybe she's like me and doesn't really know anybody's numbers. I don't know anybody's <laughs> phone numbers. <laughs> I just punch their name in my phone. You know, That's maybe, a good point. who knows? Um, <laughs> anyway, so she actually tricks him, and I thought this was really clever. Um, she's hiding in something and it appears that she's hiding in this cabinet that he has found. Um, and there's even a little piece of her dress sticking out of it. But when he opens it up, she's not in there. What she has done is she's just torn off a little piece of her dress to trick him. And, um, when she's not in there, he turns around, she's right behind him and she sprays him in the eyes with something. I I don't know. Uh, I don't know what it is. It doesn't really matter. Something aerosol that burns, um, his eyes. And, uh, she has grabbed keys from this rent a car place. She runs out there. Um, she, she finds the car, she gets in, she's driving this car towards the gate. And I'm like, this is it. She's going to make it. She's going to drive the car through the gate and she's going to be out. But right as she gets to the gate, somehow he's gotten in his car and he rams her from the side so that she can't go out. That was surprising. That, that really hits. It was surprising. I don't know if I believe that it could have really happened. I don't know how he got there faster than her. There's no way. And, and, and now he can see again. I mean, you know, I mean. <laughs> right. And maybe we're supposed to believe that just he happens to get there right at the same time. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't really care. I mean, it, it, it doesn't bother me. It was right. it was exciting. Yeah, um, was. But her car is still, I mean, he hits her hard, but both of their cars are still operational. So she takes off again. He takes off after her but somehow he pulls around so he ends up in front of her and they're face to face and it's this classic game of chicken and he's revving his engines and i love it at this point she just goes let's effing do this (laughs) (laughs) i love it and they both start barreling at one another and she is you know this is it you know this is the end of the road for her it's all or nothing she does not puss out he does and so she goes right by him and again i'm thinking this is it she's gonna make it but then she crashes the car and flips the car and it's that classic thing where the horn is blaring because her head she's unconscious with her head down against the horn and he goes to the car opens it up and starts to try to help her again and she takes this nail file again she has this because she got it out of the back of the car i think it's a nail file or some sort of maybe it's a screwdriver i don't remember and she stabs him in the eyeball with it um and then they show they show the stabbing close up like two or three times (laughs) yeah yeah so gross um and then so he's down on the ground in pain and she's again smart smart girl she takes her handcuffs and uses her handcuffs to choke him out so smart um after she's after he's he's not unconscious but he's choking and and coughing on the floor she gets the key off of his belt uncuffs herself and cuffs him to the car and meanwhile we see that due to the accident gas is now leaking out uh beneath him and at this point i I, again i thought that wes bentley did such a good job because he he goes back to his kind charming self he's alive i just i just i just wanted to be friends i'm alone i'm always alone I almost felt bad for the guy. Yeah. You know, I almost that this poor guy really is just, he doesn't have anybody. Maybe he doesn't have anybody because he's crazy, <laughs> 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 but I felt bad for him nonetheless. And, and it, it, and it looks like she's just going to walk away and, and leave him there and, and get out and probably call the cops. And that's when he makes the mistake 
of again showing his true colors and calling her a word that no tough girl like this is going to take laying down um, <laughs> he calls her a stupid effing c word uh and that just stops her in her tracks and she turns around and she's got the taser and the gas is coming towards her and she goes Merry Christmas, Thomas. And she sets the taser to the gasoline. It erupts in fire. It, it gets to him and um, it catches him on fire. And he's screaming. Again, a good performance. I mean, it, it's, it felt very real. Uh, it, it, it looked like he was in pain. And eventually it blows up. The sprinklers, sprinklers come on and she walks out uh, into christmas morning in new york city she's alone walking down the street she's all bloody and she's barefoot and it's snowing and we see the fire trucks coming it cuts to black and we hear a voice presumably a fireman saying ma'am ma'am are you okay and that's the end of the movie yeah but then we get the credits and normally credits you know are nothing to talk about but i really thought this was really clever in the first third of the credits they show all these stills from the movie it, so it looks like snapshots and that's how they show them on the screen it looks like uh, a photograph and they it shows all these scenes that make it look like we have just watched a comedy yeah. um, and i just thought that was, i thought it was so clever i just thought it was such a clever way to end this movie that was really very violent and, and suspenseful i just thought it was a, a a nice end i it put a smile on my face at the end yeah, I took them as um like snapshots that you might take at a family Christmas gathering. <laughs> right. You know, I I have to say I thought this movie was pretty pedestrian. And I don't know if I had seen it when it came out in 2007 if I would feel the same way. Maybe it's just that I've seen a lot of movies like this and this movie didn't feel like it had much more to offer in that regard except mm -hmm. for like you said that little bit of setup where He's got her chained to the table, and he's he's cooked a dinner for her. Again, I've seen that in, in The Loved Ones, but again, that came after this movie, so I can't really hold it too much against it. But I guess I'm just maybe getting tired of these kind of woman in peril because the psychotic guy has, has chained her up and, and loves her kind of films. And if I'm going to see one, I want to see one that has a little bit more of a twist to it. And this movie... I don't know, not only did it not offer much of anything new, but like I said earlier, I felt like she just could... It was just one sequence after another, and it, almost like a sitcom. You know how a sitcom always yeah. has to end by resetting everything yes. back to where you were? Yeah, that's how this movie felt. Like None of the sequences really upped the stakes much uh, after she's fleeing. Uh, none of the sequences really changed her situation. It's like, oh, she got out of that scrape. Now she's going to be in a new scrape. Now she got out of this scrape. Now she's going to be in a new scrape. And she never – for a woman who has uh, the determination and the smarts to do what she does at the very end – which is pretty complicated, uh, pretending to mm -hmm. to to be right. unconscious, stabbing the guy in the eye, uh, then choking him to the point of death. That why she didn't choke him to death, I don't know, but maybe she thought right. he was dead. Uh, taking his keys off, unlocking herself, and then locking her to there. There were so many other times in this movie when she could have done the smart thing that she didn't. Uh, when she goes in and she's like gonna gonna take him out with the axe and then gets distracted by the screen so much that she blows her cover by smashing it. True. Um, the you know the whole nine one one sequence is nice. It's really smart that she's gone to this trouble of putting her dress in the door, but she just maces the guy and doesn't finish the job. 
Right. <laughs> she maces him and runs off. And when she gets escapes from underneath the truck, she there's just this convenient hole in the wall that she ducks to uh, so that she can escape for the next sequence. Um, uh, that was disappointing to me. Uh, his other movie I felt like wasn't really like this. Uh, High Tension, I felt, and maybe I'm misremembering that movie too, but I felt like High Tension was a film and again, he he directed High Tension. I think he just wrote and produced this movie. Aha! Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, but yeah, I, that one held a lot more for me. And by the way, we're going to have to do that movie. I don't think it's on our list, but we've got to put that on our list. Yeah, I've seen it, but I remember nothing about it. I, I don't remember anything. It's been so long since I've yeah. seen it. I understand. I understand your complaints about the movie, and I agree with them for the most part. Um, but I like this movie. I don't love it. But I, I actually kind of really like it, and I think that the largest reason for that is because of the performances of the lead actors. Mm. I thought that they both did a really good job. Um, the the Angela, uh, Rachel Nichols, again, I've never seen her in anything else, but I thought that she really held her own. And Wes Bentley as Thomas, I just thought his performance was phenomenal, which is ironic because he's later uh, said in – um, interviews that this movie was filmed during a decade in his life where he was severely addicted um, to, I think it was cocaine and um, heroin. Um, And he was really just, yeah, he was really just taking roles, taking whatever roles he could get to have money to pay for drugs. Um, And I, I wouldn't have believed that if, if, if it hadn't come from his own mouth because he seemed very much in control of his performance. There were a couple of times because I had read that before I watched it again, there were a couple of times that I noticed that he had like sweat on his forehead and stuff, but that's not out of character. You know, that could (laughs) just be from the lights or whatever. Uh, so the fact that he was able to pull off such a strong performance at such a dark time in his life, I find impressive. And I just liked it. The other thing that I like about it is there's enough of a Christmas atmosphere for yes. me to really kind of feel like this is a Christmassy movie and it will be something that I can have at my disposal if I want a Christmas horror movie <laughs> during this time of year. Um, it, I, I, I would wa- I probably will. I would and will watch this movie again, um, probably around Christmas time in the future. Um, and, yeah. and like you said, the, the cinematography is, is good, I think. It's got a lot going for it. The things that you mentioned as, as being um, kind of where it has some, uh, I don't know, some, some downsides, I, I agree with. But I think that the good stuff outweighs the bad stuff. You know, I agree with you about the performances. They are really stellar. And this movie would have been horrible without fantastic performances from them. Mm-hmm. It really would have been bad. You're right. This is this is like uh, this movie is to horror films as Die Hard is to action films. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a Christmas movie uh, in in all the right tones, uh, even though it it's not about Santa Claus and people uh, giving and sharing goodwill with each other. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Two Guys in a Chainsaw. We will be back next week with another Christmas movie, and this one is one of my absolute favorites. I'm so looking forward to it. Next week we will be talking about Gremlins, which is just a quintessential uh, Christmas movie in my mind. So uh, if you're a fan of that movie, make sure you check in next week. If you liked this podcast, we have a whole backlog of episodes available. Um, We are on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. You can find us on Facebook. Let us know what you thought of this episode. Or if you've seen this movie, let us know what you thought, whether you uh, agreed or disagreed with our assessment. And until next week, I'm Craig. And I'm Todd. With two guys and a chainsaw. (laughs) 